Welcome to episode 488 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views that do not reflect those of our institutions, clients, family, friends, or pets. Joining me for the roundup, it's all lawyers this time, Kurt Sanger from DeMarco Law, former Deputy General Counsel for U.S. Cyber Command, Adam Hickey from Mayor Brown, former Deputy Assistant to AG at the National Security Division of the Justice Department, and Michael Ellis, formerly of the House Intelligence Committee and uh, NSC, and now a visiting fellow at Heritage Foundation. I'm Stuart Baker, the host and chief provocateur for the day, formerly with NSA and DHS and Steptoe and Johnson. All right, let's jump right in. Um, I think the, the story that's biggest in the news and that is likely to have a fair amount of impact on cyber law is the Supreme Court argument in the um, relentless and related cases essentially trying to overrule Chevron deference as a doctrine. Adam, what is Chevron deference and how important is this for cyber law? So Chevron deference refers to a doctrine some decades old where the Supreme Court held that in reviewing an agency's interpretation of a statute, in rulemaking, to the extent there's ambiguity in the statute, the court ought to give due deference to the rulemaking agency unless it's almost patently unreasonable. And this deference has led agencies like the EPA and others to look to statutory authority that never anticipated the problems we confront now and draw on first principles and make rules that perhaps Congress didn't envision at the time they passed the statute, but that the agency would say, were necessary to confront new problems. That's the favorable pitch on it. So this is how we go from having an air pollution law to a law that regulates climate emissions. Correct. And maybe more recently in Germaine to the podcast, how you get a, a law related to clean water and the authority of the EPA to do sanitary surveys that grows into authority for inspecting the ICS systems and the cybersecurity practices of the water plant because the agency says it's tied to the sanitary and whether the water is ultimately clean and drinkable, which I think is not, you know, it's a plausible position. But if Chevron falls and judges aren't required to defer to the agencies, then I think depending on the judge's point of view, I think you're likely to see less deference to agencies and less ability to rule, make rules in new areas. And I'll just note I tie this in my mind to the major questions doctrine and generally the trend in the courts to give less deference to rulemaking or try to rein in what is done through rulemaking. A lot of the more novel cybersecurity rules coming out of even the Trump administration were founded on IEPA or otherwise require taking an old authority and making it new again. Yeah. So to my mind, that's what we're going to see is that those are the places where agencies have gotten creative and felt they needed to be creative and where the folks that are on the receiving end of those regulations are going to be more likely to challenge them. Based on the oral argument, it sounded like there are at least four votes to knock Chevron in the head and say it's not good law and three votes to defend it and a couple of votes that sounded maybe as though they were looking for a... Uh, an easy way to say Chevron is not as good a deal for the agencies as you think, but it's not dead. The press reports I saw had Justices Roberts and Barrett as 
least tipping their hand to their view. So I guess we'll see what the court comes out with in a few months. Yeah. Uh, Justice Kagan, who is the most, I think, the wiliest of the left-leaning justices, leaped at the idea of doing to Chevron what actually she did to our deference, which is a similar doctrine that says if you write the regs and you write something ambiguous, then the courts will listen to you when you tell them what it means. And the court went through that and said, it really, really, really has to be ambiguous. We really mean ambiguous and then left it in place. And so you could see something like that coming out of this uh, argument. But even under that Kaiserified approach, it's going to be tougher to be creative. Having been a creative bureaucrat, I am going to sort of miss this. <laughs> okay. Speaking of creativity and the water sector, uh, Kurt, the fact that uh, the EPA tried and failed to sell Chevron deference to its effort to turn EPA's rules into a cybersecurity rulemaking opportunity. And so now EPA and the FBI and CISA have written cybersecurity guidance for water companies. How big a difference is that going to make? So I'm guessing not that much of a difference because the guidance, of course, is voluntary relative to the regulation that they thought they were going to have some, some action on. And I wonder whether the industry pushback or the pushback of state attorneys general really made them withdraw the rule or it was anticipating what might come a Chevron with the uh, Supreme Court case. But yeah, the guidance, if you've looked through it, it doesn't have a lot that's specific to the water and wastewater community. Right. It's pretty standard. It could have said, send the bed bug letter, uh, essentially, and, and gotten this for this industry. Yeah, no, exactly. I think you can take the same guidance that it provides and apply it to other industries, and it wouldn't be that hard to make it fit. So what's interesting about the water industry, of course, is, as it's mentioned in the uh, agent of the FBI said, they're target rich and cyber poor. Yeah. And this is true of many organizations that are providing water that they serve less than 10,000 households in America. This is where a lot of Americans get their water from. And they don't have the resources to put in better cybersecurity. They don't have the money for it. They don't have the personnel. So the question is, how do we make it? We can't make it target poor because the Iranians have already demonstrated that they're willing to over and over again look for these smaller water systems and target them and affect them. What are we going to do to make them better protected? And how can we align both the public and private incentives maybe in some sort of tax incentive or something else that might protect the cyber systems of these smaller companies because their impact, if they are affected, is going to be far greater than what they are able to protect on their own. Yeah, my impression is that the problem in this area is less the private companies that provide water and sewage services and more the public entities that do it. And the public entities have been screaming bloody murder about regulation and saying it's really a plot by the private companies to take us over. And so I get the sense that they are the ones who most need regulating and are least likely to be regulated. You know, the Iranians succeeded in their campaign mainly against folks who have not changed the default password, which was 11111 on some of their equipment. 
So it's kind of hard to imagine that you need to spend a lot of money to get people to actually change their password. It's really a question of finding a way to persuade people that they really have to do some of these things. Yeah, and that takes awareness that a lot of these companies just don't have. They don't have somebody on the inside protecting them that is attuned to these types of threats. And so that's where government may want to step in with incentives or providing the resources directly to those. It's something that here, I'm, I'm broadcasting from Florida, State of Florida has devoted funds to this, and I'm hoping that uh, the companies here are taking them up on the on that offer. I'm guessing that the the way this gets resolved is that all of the water companies come with their handout to the federal government, and the federal government finds some pot of money and says, "Here's a pot of money. If you take the money, you have to you have to do what we tell you." Yeah, well, the government's got a responsibility to keep its population hydrated. It's yeah. part of the deal. So I think it would be money well spent. Okay. So Adam, CISA has been working overtime telling agencies to hurry up and patch some of their systems. I guess there's a couple that they've done in the last week. One of them was for Citrix and the other was for Avanti. Any lessons from CISA's directives? Well, a couple. One is it's it's unusual for CISA to give federal agencies such tight deadlines to implement patches. In one case, I think it was an immediate order. In the other, they had a week. I think this points to the a couple things. The extent to which these vulnerabilities are common because the software at issue, whether it's NetScaler or Avanti's, is used throughout the government, and the vulnerability is significant, meaning that if you exploit it, the payoff in terms of lateral movement or privilege escalation is significant. I think it, it also points to this being exploited in the wild. You know, part of what CISA is doing is signaling to the government to improve its security, but it's also signaling to the private sector when it does this to prioritize patching you know, in the private sector's house. And that resonates with me because in my own practice, I've seen these or related vulnerabilities exploited at companies when they had just hours from the time it became more widely known the vulnerability existed to the time the actor penetrated their network. And so I think the trend in seeing ransomware groups, to say nothing of nation states, exploit vulnerabilities like this swiftly is ever increasing. And um, I'm pessimistic both about where this leads in the federal government or in the private sector. Yeah, I sort of agree with you. What this says is the attackers have figured out that you can quickly weaponize a patch. The patch comes out, and if you can get there before the CISO gets there and installs the patch, which is not that hard, then you're going to own the system. And they've got a battle rhythm now that is hours or days before they start using the so-called patched uh, vulnerability against people whose patch cycle is not, I'll get it done two hours after the patch is released. Well, that's, I mean, that's just not practical for all patches, right? I mean, if you have a network of any complexity, you're going to have to prioritize which patches you implement on on what scale, and you're going to run into bumps. You're going to run into conflicts across uh, between pieces of software, or you're going to run into hardware limitations that don't allow you to patch, uh, which is what I saw in one recent case. And so it's not just we've got all these lazy CISOs who are not, you know, hitting the update button on their apps. It's a little bit harder than that. But when CISA does this, it's helpful because it says, okay, you've got to prioritize this one above all others. Fair enough. 
but this strikes me as kind of we've built this problem in and saying prioritize this one is not a solution. It's a triage. I think that's right. It's, it's the best we can do at the moment. I don't know, you know, short of not having as many vulnerabilities, yeah. so we're going to do better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's see. Uh, Kurt, the attack that the Russians made on Kyivstar, the biggest telco provider in Ukraine, I think continues to look less and less impressive the more we learn about it. Yeah, I went back this morning to listen to what you said last week, and you called it a weapon of mass annoyance. And I think you're largely right in how it's been employed. Although I learned a valuable lesson yesterday. You don't bet against Patrick Mahomes until he demonstrates that he's not going to win. <laughs> right? I'd say the same thing about Putin at this point. I don't ever assume that Putin doesn't have us right where he wants us. So I'm trying to think, what are they trying to accomplish with an operation like this that isn't strategic? Because obviously these cyber events are not having strategic impact. Based on what you discussed last week and, and how that operation played out, it didn't really have much tactical success either because they were back up and running very quickly, but also didn't coincide with any kinetic activity. So it didn't seem like it had much tactical impact either. So maybe the point is to just test out their weapons and see what they have for later on, yeah. see what the adversary's response is, just use it as a testing ground. Also, maybe their point is they want to affect the company. I believe it was uh, Vion yep. that is the provider to Ukraine. Maybe they just wanted to tank their stock or make their stockholders think yep. that they need to think twice about supporting the, the war in Ukraine. So maybe there's something more going on. And Kivistar said it cost them $100 million, which is, you know, serious money. But it looks as though most of that was not spent to try to get their infrastructure back. It was to get their customers back. It was to send them credits saying, I know you had to buy a SIM card from one of our competitors and we'll give you a special bonus if you'll come back to us and install our SIM card. And, you know, if that's what Putin's doing, he can certainly cause relative competitive pain for certain people and for certain companies in Ukraine. And maybe given his comfort with oligarch uh, juggling, that's what he wants to do. But, you know, from the point of view of worrying about cyber war, this is just not creating much of a concern. No, but it, the Ukrainians have demonstrated that they will put up with weapons of mass annoyance and, and much right. more. But maybe the stockholders of Vion won't, and maybe this will have yeah. a ripple effect because it's not just their stockholders, but the stockholders of the next company that's going to be affected. And they say suddenly, or you know, especially the owners that may have some political influence, they say maybe this cause isn't worth supporting anymore because it's going to affect our bottom line. So yeah. while it's not having tactical impact, I'm assuming that there might be something else going on. Okay. I mean, isn't there also just a chance this was a target of opportunity, right? Some Russian yeah, they had it. Or, and why not? I mean, right. It's like, just, just go for it, right? You know, anything to uh, cause the Ukrainians a little bit of pain and annoyance. And maybe it's part of a grand strategic plan by Putin, or maybe it's just a, you know, low or mid-level guy, you know, had a, had a chance to have some fun, uh, so to speak. As a strategic thinker, he's obviously a great tactician. And that's my sense of he likes he likes causing pain. He likes seeing people in pain. 
And it's less clear that he has a long-term plan for a lot of this stuff. That's my guess. In fact, they probably more strategically significant is that they broke into, the Russians broke into Microsoft's email and focused entirely on their top management and lawyers to see what Microsoft knew about some of the Russian attackers. I thought that was a pretty interesting attack, maybe not one that casts much credit on Microsoft. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, that's part of what stood out. And certainly a lot of the press reporting is focusing on how this happened, because what was reported is that the attackers use the password spray. Essentially, they take a fairly common password and they try it against a number of different accounts and see if it works, Yeah, which is something that shouldn't be successful a, if you have a strong password, not a common one, and B, if you have multi-factor authentication. And C, uh, it was disclosed that they were able to compromise a test tenant account, which probably shouldn't be connected to production systems or shouldn't give you the, the ability to move laterally in the network. A couple other things stood out to me. One is email hacks of executives are not new. In fact, it's one of the first places any kind of intelligence collection effort will focus I do wonder whether these are the people or all of them are the people who are going to know much about the SVR. In other words, I don't imagine the senior executives in legal or on the business side thinking acutely about actor groups, or maybe they do, maybe the cybersecurity executives too. But I did wonder about the motive versus the target. The other thing I think that is this stands out here is Microsoft disclosed this in an 8K. And this is one of the, the first 8Ks filed after the SEC's rule requiring disclosure of material cyber incidents became effective. And I wondered whether this was a result of that rule or whether, you know, whether we're looking at a trend in disclosures like this because of that rule. The company said that the incident had not materially impacted its operations, but that the jury was still out on whether it was reasonably likely to impact materially its financial condition or results of operations. Because this was just an email hack for a month, I kind of scratched my head at that. I wondered why materiality would be an open question because it's hard for me to imagine that this will actually ever have a material impact on the earnings of a company as large as Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if this just creates a vehicle for companies to disclose incidents really without regard to whether it's material or not. And if that's the case, whether the increased reporting will end up being more signal than noise. I think for sure we're going to see a lot of ways in which people say, well, we're reporting this, but it's not material yet. Maybe it will be. But then once they've done that, uh, the heat is off and they can take a much more aggressive view of materiality because they've reported it. Yeah, though, if every company whose executives are breached by a foreign intelligence service is disclosed in an AK, that's going to be a lot of filings based on my experience in the government. They, they have to know about it first, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Yeah. The problem is they've got four days from materiality to disclosure. So there's a real penalty for deciding something is material and not much of a penalty for over-reporting stuff that's not material. I guess I, I could also see the argument for materiality from Microsoft on the logic that if people thought that, you know, this undermined security of Microsoft products, that would <laughs> rep damage the reputation of consumers and, and that really would be material. I mean, as you described it, Adam, it wasn't connected to operations, right? So I can see why they want to disclose the non-materiality of it to dispel the rumors or you know, concerns that it could be material, right? Well, they were they were reading right. their emails, right? They were they were reading their emails, so they were getting into real. Uh, oh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I just meant that it doesn't mean that everyone using a Microsoft product is also uh, right. vulnerable, right? Yeah, that would be the really like, worst yeah. case scenario it, this, for them. This yeah. wasn't Solar Winds. 
But, you know, the worst thing is it disclosed that Microsoft isn't using multi-factor authentication consistently. You know, I'm sure Gary Gensler at the SEC is delighted to have somebody else screw up that way. But uh, yeah, he's probably he's probably not in a gloating mood quite yet <laughs> after last week. And it would be hard, hard for the SEC with a straight face to say that's the most material thing that happened here because they're going to take a while to live that down. All right. So the FBI and CISA are warning about the Chinese and they've reissued. It looks to me as though they've just reissued a warning about DJI and it's being a Chinese company. Kurt, what was new and what the FBI and CISA said about Chinese drones? So there should have been nothing new. If we need to be reminded that China is trying to learn as much about the United States and its business and its national security right now, we're in big trouble. But my question after seeing all this was buying a little helicopter off Amazon that you keep in your house. Is China trying to put an eyeball in every house in America? I think at this point, seeing a warning like this, that you have to assume that. And I'm wondering what are the legal mechanisms and what are the political mechanisms by which we would go ahead and protect ourselves from, from this type of scrutiny? Because I think after a warning like this, where would we stop? So I was struck by the fact that there was a 90% market share in the retail market by DJI, which has been true for quite a while. But at what point do you think it's even 70% for a more sophisticated drones? I was kind of wondering whether NSD ever leans over to the antitrust division and says, so, uh, you know, next time you've got some resources for a monopolization inquiry, you might want to look at this one. Yeah. In fact, NSD and antitrust started communicating more in the last five years than they were before, though they're like, as you might expect, Stuart, they are islands with communication. They are not joint operations. Yeah. So um, not being an antitrust lawyer myself, I never felt like I knew enough to be really dangerous in suggesting a tip to antitrust. Also, I don't know what they would do about a foreign company. I just don't know about antitrust, but what are the resources of a, of a U.S. antitrust regulator when it comes to a foreign company that just happens to sell a lot here? I think if you ask the regulators, there are no limits on their jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other point I wanted to make in this is worth flagging a provision of the NDAA from last week, I think, that prevents the government from procuring Chinese drones, which another signal to the marketplace, yeah. I think. So I actually, this brought back to mind the uh, FTC decision announcing that they were going to require the data brokers restrict access to information about the location of consumers if the locations were sensitive. And the list of sensitive locations includes drug abuse centers, religious organizations, prisons, labor union offices, education facilities, places where immigrants gather, refugees, dom domestic violence uh, centers, and uh, services for racial and ethnic groups. And, uh, you know, exactly why they're all sensitive is sometimes a little unclear. I remember when the Defense Department was all up in arms about the fact that you could disclose secret bases in Afghanistan just because of the apps that people were using to exercise around those bases. And th that raises the question, why is it that the FTC didn't say that military bases are sensitive locations? And this brings me back to a point I make 
every six months or so, which is that unlike the FCC, which quite clearly and by doctrine defers to the executive branch on national security matters, the FTC is utterly unaware of anything that, that has anything to do with national security, if not contemptuous of it. And so my question is, is this something, especially on something like location, where the administration needs to go to the FTC and say, yeah, yeah, you're independent, but you've got to listen to people who know something about national security? That would be helpful. I mean, there's a there's a consultation process built in between the FCC and DOJ that only got stronger over the last six or seven years. I don't think that line of communication exists in the same way at all with the FTC. Although I am skeptical of this zone of privacy approach to sensitive locations. I mean, I think what makes location data sensitive is the longitude of detail you collect about a human being and their pattern of life. At least thinking about it from an intel collection perspective, it's not just those locations, although it's certainly that. It's also just what they're doing on a random Thursday, every Thursday at 9 a.m. Yeah. is also a vulnerability. So I think a better approach to this would be you know, a little more holistic than just trying to reverse engineer what where all of the you know, abortion clinics, military bases, and gay bars are in the country, and then allowing you to sell everything else. Yeah. So I agree with you on that, but this is where the fate of Chevron will turn out to be important because the FTC is really out there in saying, you know, our ability to deal with unfair and deceptive practices allows us to tell people they can't collect and sell information about location. Well, and the appointments cause jurisprudence, uh, Ah, yeah, that's right. FTC or FCC uh, uh, authority in, in other contexts, right? It always well, bothered me that the FCC and the FTC describe their communications with the executive branch. Like, what branch do you guys think you're a part of? There's, a, there's only three. You have to pick one. And you're, and you're, not, you're not part of the judiciary or legislative branch. So we're left with one option here. You know, I, I think that could be another another trend that might bring them a little closer to national security decision making. Hopefully. Yeah, you know what they will say, you know, as bizarre as it seems today, is well, we're we're beyond politics. We're experts. We're bipartisan, and we look at these questions from a uh, an expert point of view, and that means we can't be influenced by any of those nasty political branches. Yeah, Lena Khan is very smart and an excellent lawyer, but I don't think anyone would say that she's beyond politics. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, let's talk about China, Apple, and AirDrop, because Apple's handling of AirDrop, which is a way of distributing material to people you don't know but who happen to be near you, I guess it's fair to say, has produced a stream of bad stories for both Apple and the Chinese government. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, AirDrop was one of the few communications channels that protesters in Hong Kong uh, in 2019 and in China in 2022 could use to share materials with each other without being subject to monitoring or censorship by the Chinese security services. And you know, for the PC users out there, that's because AirDrop is a, is a peer-to-peer sharing protocol that goes over Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. So there's, there's no internet connectivity involved. And as you noted, Stuart, a couple of years ago, Apple took flack for limiting the functionality of airdrop for users only in China. And, you know, they never came out and said it. Presumably that change was made at the behest of the Chinese government. Now a Chinese government judicial institute has announced that they can break Apple security protocols and identify the phone numbers and email addresses 
that users have used to share information with AirDrop and that they've used that technique to successfully identify multiple suspects. It appears that Apple has known about this vulnerability for a couple of years, at least, and hasn't fixed it. So to me, it seems like another data point that, you know, notwithstanding Apple's marketing rhetoric around user privacy, if it's the Chinese government that's asking and, you know, if they make 90% of their products inside of China, they don't really have any alternative but to go along with the Chinese are asking. Yeah. It's a tough spot for them, but that they're stuck. Yeah. And they probably could have fixed it to the extent that I understand what happened here. It looks as though Apple was encrypting everybody's email address and phone number or hashing it at least so that it was not accessible to eavesdroppers. But if you already have every phone number and every email in the country, which the authorities clearly do, you just go through and hash them all and create a table that says, okay, when we find this hash, it means this number. And that seems to be what was done. Probably if Apple had taken some effort to randomize how it was encrypting stuff, they, they could or salting the hash. It might have made it much harder to do that. So I agree with you. It, it sounds like they just decided that it would be a problem if they made it harder for the Chinese government. And that just made it much easier for the Chinese government. Yeah, at your point, that there may also have been operational reasons why this would have been a difficult vulnerability for, for Apple to fix, right? Like yep. that's, you know, that might not have, might not have worked as well, but yeah, it, it certainly appears that they, they knew this was vulnerable to Chinese exploitation and didn't do anything about it. So while everybody is picking sides in the great divide between uh, China and the West, it looks as though OpenAI is slowly waking up to the fact that maybe it has to pick sides as well. Adam, uh, this was a kind of a piece of good news. Yeah, uh, The Intercept, among our allies, picked up on the fact that OpenAI's usage policies changed in early January. They used to include a ban on, uh, and still do, an activity that has a high risk of physical harm. But that included not only weapons development, but broadly anything related to the military or warfare. And so that would sort of prevent you from doing anything on behalf of U.S. DOD or any state military, any other foreign government's military. The new policy follows the harm principle and still gives weapons development as an example of a banned use. But the blanket ban on military warfare has vanished, and so commentators picked up on this. I think that's sensible um, for a number of reasons. Even if you don't want AI being used for weapons development, put a pin in that, There's a lot that DOD needs help with, including cybersecurity and other defensive purposes that you would want both access to their procurement dollars and you'd want the data that's going to come with that, right? Companies do really well because DOD applications are unique and it's a robust data set that you're going to get by providing services to them. So the company should want it and Americans should want it. I would really hate for us as a country to be less well-prepared for war because our companies don't work with the military because I'm quite confident the PRC is going to have no trouble getting cooperation from companies in China to help their military. Yep. And I have to say, you know, maybe it's just me, but I love reading stories where the intercept is outraged and chagrined. Those are some of the most satisfying stories in my feed. (laughs) And Adam, you you raised a good point. Like why? Why have a blanket ban in there, right? Like, yeah, 
you might want to take these on a case-by-case basis, and there might be some that OpenAI doesn't want to participate in, but why would you have a yeah. blanket ban, you know, without regard to possible uses for defensive purposes or other? The use case, things? exactly. And I think Google went through a similar evolution a few years ago, if I remember correctly. Yeah. They had a blanket policy, and they walked it back to make it more targeted in a way that would allow them to work with the military on certain projects. I will also say, like, you know, you might want to hold your nose at it, but there may be reasons why artificial intelligence would make weapons better in the same way that drone strikes are in some way preferable to using human combatants or large-scale bombs. In other words, precision is a value. And so I don't say that lightly, but it, it seems a little reflexive to me to say, oh, we shouldn't use AI for war any more than we would say we shouldn't use any other technological de- development in the course of weapons development. Yeah, it is hard to believe. Uh, well, it just... It just you know, swarming drones. That kind of swarming attack is going to become more common. And if other people are doing it, you can't afford to say, oh, well, my companies won't support that. But there are solutions that the DOD can pursue here, right? I mean, they can buy their own bespoke AI tool that has access to most of the information that Yes, that's right. The the so-called open source AI, which has turned out to be remarkably trainable, is something that you ought to be able to get. Plus, there's at least one French company in this field, and I'm sure they'll sell it. (laughs) Okay, let's see. Oh, speaking of things that make Apple look bad, I am just astonished, uh, Michael, at the way Apple and Google as well have treated their losses, which have been many, on their effort to say, hey, if you sell your product through the App Store, we get 30% of anything you make from that product for doing much less than 30% of the work. And yet when they get caught doing that and told you can't do it, as happened in the Epic Games case, their solution is, you know, kind of, totally defiant. It's almost adolescent in its determination not to do what they've been told to do. Uh, Yeah, they've got a lot of chutzpah. You know, folks may remember that Epic Games prevailed on one of its antitrust claims against Apple, even while they lost on on most of them. And last week, the Supreme Court denied Apple's cert petition. So the lower court ruling will stand and Apple will have to comply with, again, the one claim where where Epic prevailed on California's anti-steering law and its App Store policy being a violation of that. So, you know, as you noted, Stuart, what what did Apple do to comply? They said, okay, well, you can inform your users about external web-based payment options outside of the app, but only after you apply to us for an entitlement to do so and we can reject your application. Then once we approve it, Instead of the 30% fee that we charged on purchases in the app, we'll charge you 27%. Like, wow, a whole, a whole 3% difference. And that 3% um, will immediately go to Visa and MasterCard. So it's their way of saying uh, you get nothing. Nothing's good for us. It's nothing good for you. You get nothing. And they also, as soon as you know, the cert petition was denied, and again, it was clear what the outcome of the lower court opinion would be, they filed a motion seeking attorney's fees from Epic for the claims where they prevailed to the tune of $70 million. So it's definitely an all or nothing approach, right? They are dug in, they're confrontational. I think it'd be smarter, honestly, for them to give a little more on their own terms, which you see shades of Google doing that with its, its yeah. app store policies that make their critics' arguments less persuasive. They're very dug in and it has an increased likelihood of legislative or regulatory action to break the monopoly entirely. 
So the EU still has the Digital Markets Act, if I remember right, coming online, and that will give them more authority over these matters. And it's not often I say this, but, you know, I think uh, Apple deserves the EU on this one. The two deserve each other, perhaps, yes. <laughs> All right. This is a weird one, and I'm going to ask you about it. Politico had a good story uh, about the special court that's been set up to handle European data protection objections to being surveilled by U.S. national security authorities. And there's no doubt it's a peculiar court, and Politico makes much of that. But I was actually sort of surprised and a little disconcerted about some of the aspects of that court. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, there are only three branches and you've got to pick one. This one is a court, you know, court in quotes, I'll, I'll say, because it's inside of the executive branch. It was created by President Biden's executive order in October of 2022 to limit signal intelligence activities. And this was all part of the deal to resurrect transatlantic data sharing that had been tossed into jeopardy by European judicial decisions. And as you noted, there are a lot of questions about this court. No one can actually appear in person before it. No one knows if it has any cases. Its decisions won't be public. You know, to, in order to, to file a complaint that could be heard by the court, you have to have some reason to think you're being surveilled by the U.S. intelligence community, but it's not clear how any plaintiff would really know that. And even if they were being surveilled by the U.S. intelligence community and their European government might be involved, and they might have knowledge of that and might not be you know, wild about a legal challenge. So it's, it's an odd process, and what makes it even stranger is that it's only open to Europeans. If an American thinks they're being wrongly surveilled, they can't file an application to have this data protection review court hear their claim. They have to go to an actual federal court, an Article Three court. But there, there's you know various legal doctrines, the standing doctrines that make the path more complicated. So it's not clear if this court will ever really have any cases. And if it were to have cases and it bound the intelligence community's hands, it's not clear that the president would want to let that stand. So I think that the best case scenario is that this is just a paper exercise to make the Europeans happy. Whether it withstands judicial scrutiny from the EU is also an open question. But the worst case scenario is that this actually does some real harm to national security through case law of sorts that the IC is bound to follow and the president is reluctant to, to overrule. Right. While also, by the way, not solving the underlying transatlantic data sharing concern when Max Schrems filed another complaint and there's another bad European judicial decision. Yeah. At first, a lot of the things that are peculiar about this institution are peculiar about the institutions that we've been told we're inadequately imitating by the European Court of Justice. The European Court of Justice said you have to do what, what European courts do and European governments do. And this is something that European governments have instituted. You get to send in mail and you get back mail that says, we've looked into your complaint, and if anything needed to be done, we've done it. And it's kind of a Glomar response for the judiciary. So this is one way of saying to the Europeans, well, that's what you told us we were supposed to be uh, imitating, and we've done it. I do think your point about the possibility of a decision that we wouldn't even see, which wouldn't be publicized anywhere, but which actually is based on some of the you know very able people who've been put in there to, to act as judges, but who are lawyers in practice and alumni of the Obama administration. And maybe that's the answer is that 
there's the executive branch and then there's the Obama executive branch, which is independent of the Biden executive branch. But I, I do worry that at some point somebody is going to say, you know, I've always thought and now that I'm uh, a judge, but I have this authority, uh, I'm just going to say, you got to do it this way. This is what I always thought when I was in government. I'm sure Adam has a few of those. <laughs> you mean like the P-Club only with binding authority? Yes, exactly. That would be, exactly. That would be scary. <laughs> and, and the P-Club is the only, the only one I think who really has like some sort of nominal oversight over this, uh, this court as well. They have to give a report once a year to the P-Club. Yeah, Stuart, to your point, I think I counted six of the eight judges on this court held political appointments during the Obama administration. So certainly a super majority. Yeah, well, and by and large, I think alumni of the Obama administration think they should have a certain amount of, of authority over uh, what those guys who came after them are doing. All right, um, GDPR, the European Court of Justice, which, you know, it's the gift that never stops giving. But at least this time they're giving it to a European government. Adam, this decision was kind of remarkable for its absolute determination not to pay any attention to things like, are we, are we screwing with our country's constitution? That Are we getting involved in national security? It was a, it was a GDPR above all kind of decision. Yeah, maybe a, a bit. I mean, uh, to, to describe the facts a bit. So an Austrian parliamentary committee is conducting an oversight hearing or inquiry over whether there was inappropriate political influence over one of their executive branch offices responsible for counterterrorism. So they hold hearings. At the hearings, an undercover agent testifies. His name ends up being revealed, and he files a complaint with the Data Protection Authority. So the question is, is this within scope, given the Data Protection Authority is in one branch of their government, and the parliament is obviously a different branch? So I think it made news for two reasons. One is that the court finds that the DPA is actually an authority that can hold parliament accountable for breaches of the GDPR. I think that was a bit surprising. And it does hold also, that carries through that the national security exception would apply here, as I think it would to the executive branch, although it finds that this hearing doesn't appear to be an exercise of national security authorities. It's really about whether there's political influence. And so that exception doesn't apply. But if, if political influence in a national security agency, you kind of say, yeah, there's a national security angle to that. Look, anytime anyone in Europe gives any kind of deference to national security, I smile because I see it so rarely. So I thought it was like something of a victory for that cause. But surprising nonetheless, it's a little hard to imagine DHS holding old Michael Ellis accountable for his violation of privacy rules. Yeah. All right. And um, privacy act doesn't apply to uh, executive office of the president, Adam, right? <laughs> exactly. And we can't even now, it appears, engage in day drinking to make this more bearable. Adam, Uber, which always was a peculiar mixture of, uh, well, we're going to be driving a bunch of liquor around. Uh, it, they acquired Drizzly and delivered a lot of liquor during the uh, pandemic, but those days are gone. Yeah, well, they're gone with the Drizzly app. They've indicated that they're going to shut down that business, and it's only three years and a billion dollars after they bought it. There was some speculation in the press that this is a result of some challenges Drizzly had with the FTC following a data breach. Yeah. That seems odd to me, given that that's now old news and a sunk cost, so that wouldn't explain to me why you'd get rid of the business. 
I wonder if this is just a case of them having acquired the data and some of the software tools, and now they can run this more efficiently through the app they already have. Because I know when I order some Chinese food, it now offers me a, a liter of vodka to be added on, and that's probably a bit more than I need now. Okay. Well, we'll raise a glass to old Drizzly. It's it's not going to be around any longer. Right? And that takes us to the end. Adam, Kurt, Michael, thanks for joining me. Uh, listeners, if you've got any feedback, send it to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review if you feel like it. This has been episode 488 of the Cyber Law Podcast. been a creative bureaucrat, I am going to sort of miss this. But... <laughs>